So before we get into today's episode, I just want to give you a little reminder that my newest book, The Sports Parent Solution, Proven Strategies for Transforming Parents from Obstacles to Allies, it's now available. The groundbreaking book gives you the strategies and methods you need to transform the parent culture in your team. It's going to allow you to better support each athlete's growth, improve your team's performance, and create an extraordinary experience for all involved. It's also going to help you take your program to a whole new level. It's a great accompaniment to my book, The Culture System. In fact, it actually follows the very same framework. You can get the book at Amazon and Audible. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Okay, so for those listeners who stay up to date with the podcast, I think this episode is going to be really timely, dropping on New Year's Eve. You'll you'll see why in a bit. Either way, today's episode is the final episode in a five-part series on leadership mind traps based on the work of Jennifer Garvey Berger. The fifth and final mind trap is that of ego. As she says in her book, Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps, shackled to who you are now, you can't reach for who you'll be next. I think we all know of people or leaders that we might say have a big ego. They think really highly of themselves and it's obvious how that gets in the way for them. Except a lot of leaders probably think they don't have an ego or at least in that sense. In fact, they might struggle with confidence and self-belief. So they think, you know, this ego might, might not apply to me. Except the ego as it's used by Berger and it's used by psychologists, it's actually just an individual sense of self or their perception of their identity. Now, when we hear that definition, we probably think, well, that's great. It's important to have a strong sense of self, to know who we are. Well, it's great until it isn't. As we'll discuss today, the problem when it comes to the brain with the ego is that the brain doesn't differentiate between our physical self and our sense of self. And so when we perceive a threat to our sense of self, our identity, it is very triggering, triggering in the very same way that we might have a threat to our physical self. When it's triggered, well, this is how we fall into the mind trap of ego. So the mind trap of ego is protecting our sense of self, how we are seen by others and ourselves. As Berger says, it turns out that the strongest trap is created by the person we are wanting to seem to be to ourselves and to others. The strongest trap is created by the person we are wanting to seem to be to ourselves and to others. We invest a surprising and unseen amount of our energy showing that person to the world and defending her from harm. So why is this so problematic? Well, when I think back on my coaching journey, for example, probably the number one limiting factor of my growth has been when I have been defensive, protecting of my image, the way that I do things, who I am as a coach. I've told myself and others, hey, this is just who I am. Now in today's episode, Nate and I are gonna pack all the very different ways that our ego creates problems for us. And we're going to then talk about solutions, how to escape this mind trap. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast, the podcast to help you grow as a leader and build a better culture. I'm JP Nurbin, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host today, Nate Sanderson. In addition to this podcast, I'm a leadership coach and culture consultant. To learn more about how my work at TOC can support you and your organization, visit tocculture.com. This episode is brought to you by the TOC newsletter. Every Thursday, you'll receive a short email with food for thought from Nate or 
my Leadership 311, which includes three thoughts, one tip, and one question on a specific leadership or culture topic. If you sign up for the newsletter, you'll also receive the notes to each episode of the podcast, as well as our top 10 podcast episodes and my top 10 articles. Subscribe using the link in the description of this episode or simply go to tocculture.com and click on newsletter. Well, JP, we've made it to the fifth mind trap here from the book Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps by Jennifer Garvey Berger here. And I'm going to be honest with you, this one for me has taken the most time to really wrap my brain around. And that is when the ego gets in the way. Now, we've had a number of conversations over the last couple of weeks about where we see this as an obstacle, our ego as an obstacle in coaching. And quite honestly, the best analogy that I kind of stumbled upon here when I've been thinking about this is the way that coaches, parents for that matter, adults, teachers, react to our teenagers' use of social media has helped me better understand when ego gets in my way. Let me explain what I mean. When I think about the amount of time that our players are spending on their phones curating some sort of a likable image for their peers and shoot for people that they don't even know on the internet, on social media, to like what they are presenting of themselves, I get pretty critical about, is that really a great use of our time? And why are we getting so defensive when people that we don't know are responding to some image that may or may not actually be a representation of who we are? And yet this seems to drive the mood and motivation of our players sometimes when they get caught up in trying to get enough likes from people to validate who they are. Well, when we think about what are they looking for here, they're looking for an affirmation of their ego. Their ego is sort of that sense of self that they're trying to present to the world. They're putting it out there on social media and they're looking for acceptance and validation and affirmation. That feels good. And the flip side of that is true when they don't find a lot of likes or somebody makes a comment on their post that's a little bit snarky, their instant reaction is to become defensive, to become angry, right? To lash out. And we've seen this happen on social media time and time again, adults and children alike. Well, when I think about this as an analogy for how the ego looks to interact with the world, I don't think that it's that much of a stretch to say that as coaches, like it or not, whether we admit it or not, Oftentimes, we're doing the same thing, maybe not with social media, but how many times have we gone back through the newspaper articles to see how the reporters are talking about our team? I'll be honest with you, JP. On Saturday, we played our season opener. It was streamed on the radio online. On my way home from the arena, I went back to listen to the broadcast just to see what the broadcasters were saying about our team. Because in the darkness of night, as I'm driving home in the snowfall, there is part of me that feels like my image is represented in how our team performs on the floor. It's a reflection of who I want to be or how I want to be seen. Now, that's not necessarily in and of itself a negative thing, except when it triggers those same defense mechanisms that we see teenagers respond to on social media, those same instincts start to rile up inside of me when somebody makes a comment about our team in passing, or when the broadcasters say, gosh, it doesn't look like they're playing hard. Those are fighting words, JP. And when I get to that place where I become defensive, where I'm trying to um, protect this image that I want others to have of my team and by extension, me as a coach, this can get us into trouble sometimes.
Yeah, Nate, when I think about ego, you know, there's obviously a good side of ego, right? It's good to know who we are uh, as a coach, as a human being, to have a good sense of ourself. Uh, but as Brad Stolberg says in his book, The Master of Change, and we're hoping to have Brad on in the new year to talk about some of his work. But as he says in his new book, The Master of Change, he says that ego works great until it gets in the way. And I really resonate with that line because when I think about my time as a coach, as a young coach, I had a bit of this ego, this confidence that I, that I could be successful as a coach. I had played basketball all my life, gone to basketball camps. I studied the game. I went and played division one and I won an NIT championship in Madison square garden. So when I go over to Ireland, I feel like, man, I've got all this experience as an athlete. I can surely, you know, be a good coach. And so I step on the court and I'm passionate, I'm driven, I'm hardworking, and I'm confident. And I'm able to exude that confidence that gives my players confidence. And I was effective. And all of a sudden, you know, six months into coaching, I've got five different jobs and multiple teams that want me to coach at all these levels. And I'm only 21, 20 at the or 20 or 21 at the time. Now, the problem with my ego, though, was very quickly, I relied on that success as a player, right? And I carried that into my coaching and then everything became about reaffirming that view of myself as the successful basketball coach, right? I just kind of just transferred that identity right over. And so I would walk around and, and coach with this big, huge, really uncomfortable NIT championship ring that I won at Madison Square Garden because I wanted everybody to know, right? Like, hey. I know basketball, right? I've, I've been there. I've been successful. And so as I was preparing for this episode, I thought a lot about that ring because really, honestly, at that stage of my coaching career, that ring is more of a symbol. It's a symbol of how my ego and this identity being so tied up into my success as an athlete and then as a coach kept me from showing up as the best version of myself. Like really, honestly, I would show, oftentimes show up as arrogant. I was not ready to learn from others. I had this attitude of, hey, I'm from the States, right? You guys don't know anything about basketball here. I had this arrogance, right? And that really, honestly, wasn't my best self. And when things didn't go well, like when we didn't win, right? That my ego was at stake in those moments as well. And so, you know, I, I really thought a lot about that ring. And the interesting thing is there came a point in my career when I put that away and I haven't taken it out for, gosh, I don't even remember the last time I actually took it out of the safe up in the attic there, but that's where it sits because I've left that behind. And I think so often this is what, you know, Brad Stolberg's encouragement for us in his book is he says the essential skill that is to realize when our ego's current manifestation is of service to us and learn to leave it behind when it is not. And so in today's episode, what I really want to do for our listeners is talk about how does our ego show up in ways that it hurts us, that it hinders us from A, being our best self, and B, growing into a better version of ourselves. And after we've done that, I think we got to talk a little bit about how we can overcome this mind trap, which honestly, it can become a trigger that's very linked to the other four mind traps that we've been discussing throughout this series. Well, before we get into all the ways that the ego can get in our way in coaching, I think it's important to understand a little bit of context about why this happens. And this is one thing that I really appreciate about Berger's work here is that not only does she acknowledge that the world that we are operating in is complicated, 
and it's more complex than it's ever been before. But the conflict that we often experience is because of the way that our brains have evolved over time. And there's really interesting research without getting too deep into the weeds here at the University of Virginia over the years that has basically found that the same fight or flight mechanisms that are triggered when we feel threatened, when our lives feel threatened by the lion in the woods or a snake in the grass that heightens our anxiety and we increase in our heart rate and we get all nervous, and we get ready to defend ourselves. Those same defense mechanisms are triggered when there's something in our sense of self that is threatened by something or someone else. The research on this subject is fascinating. Researchers have put subjects in fMRI machines to map the brain's activity when they feel a physical threat and they see what parts of the brain light up in their reaction to the experience of pain or the feeling of fear. Well, then they put other people into the same machine, run the same tests, and rather than threatening them physically, they would simulate a threat to someone that they know or someone that they love, or they would show them a threat to something in their belief system, their political affiliation or their religious affiliation. And what was fascinating is, JP, that the exact same parts of the brain reacted to the threat of an idea that we associate with ourselves as we would if we were afraid for our physical safety. In other words, JP, it's not your fault. And at the end of this episode, the takeaway is not you shouldn't be defensive about what other people think about you or what you think about yourself. It's an awareness of this is how my brain tends to respond naturally because this is the way we've evolved as a species. And now what do I do about that? Yeah. So that research you just shared when I first heard it, it made a lot of sense to me and also, you know, gave me a little consolation. The fact that this is a human problem. This isn't just a JP problem. And I think that's really important for all of us to, to recognize Probably the, when we think about the ego and the sense of self and where this, you know, ego becomes a mind trap for pretty much every coach out there, the, the number one trigger is this sense of self wanting to be seen as successful. Like nobody wants to be seen as a losing coach or an unsuccessful coach. Like I don't think any of us w- would want that, but it can become problematic. It can get in the way at certain points, it can be very motivating. Like I want to be successful. So I get after it. I work hard. I study film. I go to clinics, right? I get in the gym. I push my team. Like there's all these good things that come with the desire, you know, to be successful, right? To be seen as successful. But when that becomes too much part of our identity as a coach, that becomes really, really problematic. And so all of a sudden, when we're going into a high pressure game, right? Nationally televised or we go through a losing streak. Now this starts to alter how we show up as a coach. It starts to alter our emotional state. We go sleepless for nights. We study way too much film. We show up the next day and we're in a really bad mood with our players. All of a sudden we talk about the process, but we start making different decisions just to win the next game rather than what do we need to do to grow right now? So this is probably the number one problem for us as, as, as coaches. And it, is probably the number one trigger, at least cited, I think, when it comes to transactional coaching or leadership. Got to get results today. So I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get those results. And I forget about the people that I'm coaching and I'm all about results. I think one of the things that's challenging about what you're describing there, JP, is that we aren't always aware 
of the image that we want others to see of us. In other words, when a teenager is putting something on Instagram, they spend sometimes hours like curating and putting the filters on and making sure it's the right angle of their selfie or whatever it is that they're doing. They're very consciously aware of how they want to be perceived in that image. I think for us as coaches, it's very subconscious about how we want others to see us, but we stumble into the triggers or we stumble into the traps without necessarily realizing what got us there in the first place. So let me give you a couple of examples. We opened up our season in this big area showcase here a couple of days ago. We're currently in the preseason, ranked number six in our class. We played the number 14 ranked team in a class above us. And going into this game, I felt very differently than I did a year ago going into the same game when we were unranked. A year ago, when we were coming into this game, it seemed like a great opportunity to get on the map. It was an opportunity for us to see where we're at. We're going to get to compete against a good team on a big stage. It's going to be an awesome experience, and it's going to make us better. I had this really positive framework about being part of this game. Well, fast forward a year later, there's not much different other than when it lists Mount Vernon, there's a number in front of our team name. But my reaction to that, or the way that I felt preparing and going into the game, was much different because in light of what we're talking about here, it felt like I had to protect this image of having a ranked team. Like that number all of a sudden meant I watched more film for this game twice as much as I did the year before. It meant that we had shoot around and an extra practice beforehand. It meant that, you know, I'm looking at taking timeouts sooner in the game because I don't want the, it to slip away when the other team goes on a little run where normally I might let my players play through it and try to figure it out on their own. The feeling of being ranked and being recognized as one of the top teams in the state going into the season is awesome. Like it's a great reflection of where your program is at. There's lots of positives that come from that. But if I'm not careful, it can change the way that I approach coaching our team, how I respond to adversity within the game, how I do our substitutions. Am I willing to take risks? What players are we being called? What players are even playing in the game? Because deep down inside JP, there's a fear that we're not going to live up to that number. Or there's a fear that if we lose and we drop in the polls, that that's a reflection on, well, we should have won the game because we were the higher ranked team. And why can't the coach of the higher ranked team figure out how to beat the coach of the lesser ranked team. There's part of me that responds to that subconsciously without being aware of it. It all goes back to how I want to be perceived by others. And in this particular case, it's just tied to that number in front of our name, all of a sudden creates a whole different emotional and mental experience for me in preparation than a year before when we weren't trying to protect that image of our team and program. Now, wanting to be successful is not the only trigger for that mind trap of ego. There's other triggers for that mind trap of ego out there. One that I've seen in myself over the years is this one around wanting to be seen as the expert, right? Being competent. I remember teaching how to shoot a jump shot for like the first three, four years uh, of my coaching career with where it's, you know, your feet are pointed directly at the rim and your body, body's totally aligned straight towards the rim. And then I did a bunch of study in the off season around, you know, shooting technique and biomechanics. And I changed my opinion on that, right? I, my opinion actually evolved. Well, I came in to go teach it to my players. I didn't tell them why it changed or how it changed. 
I just started teaching them differently. And I remember players going, coach, but you used to teach us, you know, our, our feet need to be pointed directly at the rim. And I said, no, I, I never did that. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I, I didn't even want to admit that I was wrong, right? Um, and so there's other experiences in my coaching journey where, you know, players may have made recommendations or coaches may have made recommendations around, hey, hey we, we should try this out or you could try this defense. Or, and so often I have been hesitant because admitting that would be admitting that I wasn't the expert on everything, right? And, and, and I was seeing myself as the expert. I remember just, especially if I spent a lot of time in the off season, I put a lot of work into studying offenses and defenses and schemes, and it wasn't working out. I would be so stuck to change, even though everybody else was like, well, if we made this change, it could be helpful because no, I'm the expert. I'm the one that's put all the work and I've done all the study. You don't know what you're talking about, right? And this, this wanting to be seen as the expert and seeing myself as the expert, I had to protect that identity. And so to evolve and to change, right? Out of that was a threat, right? A threat to my sense of self. So I think what you're describing there, JP, is a, a common fear among coaches because goodness gracious, we were hired to have the answers. I mean, that's why we have the job. And yet there's this fear of if we admit, you know, that there's a better way or we found a different way of doing things that might be more effective, that it reflects poorly on the decisions that we made before. And there's a fear in that, that then all of a sudden people might start to wonder if we really do know what we're doing. And the result of that is it hinders our ability to continue to grow and it stifles our curiosity about how things could improve simply because, again, we're trying to protect this ego of Coach Sanderson has all the answers. Now, I think there's another one here that can trip us up as coaches, and that's this sense that as the authority figure, as the one in control, as the leader of the team, we should have our thumb on all of the behavior of every person, coach and player in our program. And there's this fear that if a player's behavior doesn't reflect well on the team or doesn't reflect well even on themselves, that in some way that's a reflection of our leadership. I think I feel this as a parent most acutely when I'm in the grocery store with my kids and they start to fight or they start to bicker back and forth. And I'm just so hypersensitive to what every other parent is looking at me in the grocery aisle thinking, this dad's lost it. He doesn't have control of his kids. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to raise two young girls here. And whether that judgment is there or not, they're probably thinking, thank God my kids aren't fighting like that. You know, they feel a greater appreciation for themselves, JP. I'm actually doing a service here. But I think when it comes to our ego, geez, I want to be seen as a good father with well-behaved kids. I want to be seen as a good coach whose players don't bicker at the officials or who don't fight amongst themselves on the court or who don't talk back to the coach in the huddle. Like those behaviors, I think it's assumed that coaches should have control over. And how often do we hear this phrase, well, the coach has lost the locker room or the coach has lost the team? Well, inherent in that is this, this assumption that we should have full control over every aspect of our players at all times. And that's not realistic, but our ego often responds to that perception in ways that then all of a sudden, just like with my own kids, I become short, I become angry, right? I snap at them. There might be fewer treats after dinner simply because of a little outburst at the grocery store. You know, it changes who I am because of this perception that I should be in control of everyone's behavior. And that just isn't reality. Yeah. Great example. And I think so much back to when I felt that embarrassment or shame with how my team was behaving, 
my response, that lack of that feeling like I was not in control, like that lack of authority was to go more fear-based coaching to try to regain control, to get them to shape up. And the, re- the reality is, while our team is somewhat of a reflection of the coaching, it's not a complete and perfect picture of that, you know, like I know so many good coaches that are coaching in tough areas and they're working with kids that just have different backgrounds. And, you know, you're, you're pulling kids in and you're, you're, you're meeting them where they're at and you're working with them. However, they come to you. When it comes to this sense of control, we talked about this earlier in one of the previous mind traps. I think that this ego here is like fuel that causes us to try to grip our team or to grip a player with a tighter fist or a a tighter handle because of the reflection on who we are or who we want to be seen as. And so all of these mind traps, I think, are, are can be further enhanced when our ego gets in the way. We start to tell ourselves a simple story that, well, we're struggling, but it's the player's fault, not mine, because I know what I'm doing here, right? And, and that was a mind trap we discussed before. If you think back to our desire to be right, well, that's tied in with how I want other people to see me as well. And so all of these are intertwined, but if we're not aware of the ego's influence, it makes it even easier to fall into some of these other traps almost simultaneously. Yeah, I think that really connects well with another, I think, trigger for the ego, which is I'm a coach who's well-liked. Like I'm the player's coach. I think that's an identity a lot of coaches carry today. My players like me. Somewhat connected to this trap for agreement, right? We want harmony amongst the group. We want to be well-liked. And I probably see this in my work with coaches the most when it comes to actually having hard conversations with athletes like giving them the bad news that they're not going to be starting or they're not going to be playing, right? Or even just, you know, we just came out of a basketball season period where high school basketball coaches were making lots of cuts. And what was so difficult there was, yeah, I think the coach empathizes in all those cases. They feel bad for the player that they are going to be cut from the team. But there's also part of our ego that gets hurt and sore because the player doesn't like us very much, right? We're not very well-liked. We want to be a well-liked coach. And so I think this is, you know, when it comes to these hard conversations, I know that this is one part of our ego that can be problematic for some of us as coaches. Well, I can identify with that, JP, is we just did our team assignments here last week, and there was a couple of players that didn't make the varsity team this year, and they were disappointed. Their parents were not exceptionally happy with us that they weren't allowed to dress varsity to start the season. And if I'm being honest here, my reaction to that is not just to be defensive about the decision. But I want to be well-liked by our players, just like you described there. And when they're frustrated with the decision that we make or they disagree with it, like I react to that personally. I mean, that feels like personal rejection. And I have to be careful that that I don't allow that to change the way that I think or to supersede my responsibility to the program when it comes to making the best decisions for the team. I think that is also related to this idea that you know the majority of our audience here and the coaches that we work with, they want to be seen as transformational coaches. I mean, at the end of the day, if there's one thing that I would hope that parents and players would describe about our program, it's that we are committed to helping the human grow through the vehicle of basketball. We want to have a positive impact on their lives. We want them to feel loved. You know, all of these values we're very upfront about. And so when a player goes home and says, well, I didn't make varsity, obviously I'm not loved in this program. Like, 
again, I react to that in a way that makes me start to second guess myself. And quite frankly, went back to my coaches and say, well, do we need to rethink this? Is there a way we could make this work for her? And they look at me like I'm crazy, you know, because we all agreed on this decision 24 hours before. So that reaction, again, is just about my ego and how I want to be perceived. And I just, I just have to have an awareness of that so that it doesn't derail my ability to make good decisions going forward. Yeah, that rejection, right, of sometimes it's tough love for us as coaches, that transformational coach. Like, I want to be seen as a transformational coach. And I know that sometimes that requires me to discipline my players, to enforce consequences that, you know, we've agreed to or that I've established at the start of that season. And certain players, their parents may be really unhappy with that. They might reject it. They might quit the team. They might leave the program. And they may not have a good thing to say about me. They could say that this guy doesn't care about me as a person at all. And that's not what I'm about. And that, that rejection, that hurts. And sometimes that, that fear, right, of that, of that threat, right, that threat, you know, of something like that happening, right, causes us to change and to kind of steer off course and do what we know we should be doing as, as a coach. I think there's one other, you know, really big fear, too, um, to the ego, to the sense of self that just ties back to the fact that many of us see ourselves as a coach. It's so, you know, close it's such an important part of identity, like probably more so than most professions there in the world. Like most of us go around and people still call us coach after we've retired. You know, you don't see a banker walk and say, Hey banker, you know, like at a party, but it's, Hey coach, right. You may not even coach their kid. You might, they just, people call you coach coach is so much part of our identity. And so when it comes to, especially as a head coach, the fact that we might lose that head coaching job, right? Especially at the you know, division one level or this high school level where we're a really prominent member in the community, right? That's so much part of our ego. And so that threat of losing that really can throw us off course, right? Can really throw us off from who we want to be and how we want to show up and cause a lot of problems for us. So what do we do with all of this? We, we stumble out of these triggers, our ego we're becoming defensive, we become anxious, we respond to pressure in ways that aren't beneficial to us or athletes. How do we handle being human, JP, in these moments when our ego is threatened? Well, I would say the first step here is just a simple awareness of when my ego and when my defense mechanisms are being triggered. And I'll give you, again, an example from Saturday's game. I'm telling myself two stories about the game before we go and play. On the one hand, a much more proactive story, a positive story, is that this is the perfect game for us to open the season with because we're playing a good team with a couple very good players. They're going to give us a defensive pressure and full court press and all the things that we have to be able to handle throughout the regular season. We're going to be tested in in our first game. It's a tremendous learning opportunity and challenge for us. This is the story that I told our team. Behind closed doors, here's what I'm telling our coaches. We better not screw this game up because if we take a loss here, we're going to drop in the polls. That's going to affect our seating in the postseason tournament three months from now, JP. And it's this story that's based on fear, as we talked about before, that's responding to the, the image that I want to have for our program and for myself. Well, just recognizing that, that's a fear-based narrative that I'm telling myself, that I'm repeating to my coaches. Like I have to be aware of that so that I don't introduce that sort of poisonous story 
to our team because that can have a pretty negative impact on how we perform. If we're playing from a place of fear because I'm coaching from a place of fear because my ego is being threatened by the fear of a loss, that's not good for anybody. And if I'm not aware of that, that narrative that's starting to be told in my mind, that could have a real detrimental effect on, on our team. So I think step one is just recognizing when we've fallen into that trap and then being able to start asking ourselves some questions to help get us back off of tilt so that we can show up the way that we want to. Yeah, and to help drive that awareness, I'll give you two questions that that people can reflect on that I often use in, in coaching calls uh, in my work. One is just, hey, what's at stake in this for you, right? What's at stake? And the other one is just, what's the hardest part about that? And I'll often ask that question multiple times, right? Coaches in the middle of a losing streak, right? Well, what's the hardest part about that? Oh, I'm, I'm you know, worried about this or this fear. Okay, well, what's the hardest part about that? You know, keep asking that, you whittle it down to something that's really probably is at stake for that individual is their identity, how others are seeing them, their job, right? And what's hardest about losing your job, right? Well, what would people say? You know, you know, those types of things. So oftentimes it is really comes back to the ego and we drill down to what's at stake for us or what's the hardest part about something that we're going through. And so those are two kind of questions I, I would encourage people to reflect on. Well, I think when it comes to the fear of being wrong, changing course, you know, to a, a potentially more effective way of, of coaching or whatever it might be. You talked about this earlier in the podcast. Berger talks in the book about just reminding ourselves that we are not who we were. So when our defense mechanism in the short term says, you're the expert, you know what's going on, don't admit that you're wrong, people start to question you, people start to wonder if you really know what's going on, we have to remind ourselves, well, I'm not the same person I was five years ago. We're not doing the same things in practice we were doing 10 years ago because we've continued to evolve. We've continued to improve. I've continued to learn. I've continued to grow as a coach. And I hope that I will continue. I think the worst thing that could happen is five years from now, we look back and we say, yeah, we're pretty much doing what we were doing five years ago. Well, that, that means I've been stuck in a rut because I've been afraid to change or to admit that there might be an even better way of doing things. So that perspective of I'm not who I was reminds me that I'm not quite who I'm going to be either. And that fuels me to want to continue to grow and change. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a conversation I had this morning with a coach. And on the call, he had said, you know, this year, I want to be more positive and encouraging. I still want to be myself. And I thought about that for a second. I said, okay, I get that. But what does it mean to be yourself? And he sat back, he reflected. He's like, I guess it's my style, my personality. You know, I, I, still, want, I still want that to remain. And my challenge to him was, hasn't that evolved over time? Like, doesn't style evolve? Doesn't even our personality, like, are you still the same person today that you were, like you said there, Nate, five years ago? He's like, oh, absolutely not. And so I think what I really ended up reflecting on and, and, and asking him then was, hey, who do you want to be in this next stage of life, right? Be open to the fact that you, even your style, your personality can change. Even how our values and how we express those, our, our core values, they can look differently as we move forward. And so we need to be a little bit more flexible. And just to bring it back to the book I was talking about earlier, Master of Change by Brad Stolberg, there's a whole chapter in there that I'm really hoping to unpack with him 
in our conversation of the new year, which is just called cultivate a fluid sense of self, cultivate a fluid sense of self. And I just think it just speaks so much to what we're talking about here is that being open to the fact that who we are today is not who we are going to be a year from now or five years from now. And so we probably want to, as Berger talks in the book, get a, get a, get a good sense of who we are now, but start to map out who we want to become moving forward. Well, I think at the end of the day here, JP, what I would leave coaches with is this idea that our ego and our defense mechanisms are going to manifest in all kinds of different ways. We have a desire to be right, to be seen as someone who is in control of the situation, who other people are going to agree with because we're the leader, right? Because we're the expert, because we're the authority. And quite frankly, JP, in the sports world, lots of people make money telling the simplest stories about our teams that are not necessarily accurate. And most of those stories, the linchpin is the coach. That team is successful because they're well coached. That team's not successful because they're poorly coached. And we have a tendency to internalize that, to let it bake into our identity, and then get ourselves into all kinds of trouble as our ego starts to either defend the one side, we're a good coach, or to fight against the side that says, uh, no, they're not good because the coach doesn't know what he's doing. If there's one bit of preventative medicine that when taken regularly can help to prevent us from falling into this trap of ego or any of the other mind traps that we've talked about in this series, I think it's the consistent reminder coming back to a place of humility, of just admitting I'm not always going to be right. I don't always have control over the, this complex world that I'm trying to coach in. Not everybody's always going to agree with me. And quite frankly, JP, the stories aren't as simple as what I'm seeing on TV, as what I'm reading on the message boards, even as what I'm telling myself. And in terms of my ego, there's a way that I want to present myself in the world. I'm just not there yet. And that's okay. I'm closer than I was, but I'm not as close as I will be. And if we can just anchor ourselves in that place of I'm a work in progress and I'm growing and I'm doing my best to create the conditions for good things to happen, this is going to allow us to be as effective as possible as a coach. And I think keep us from being able to get stuck in these mind traps that Berger describes. All right, so as you head into the new year, my recommendation is to do something different than setting New Year's resolutions. Don't set any goals to lose weight, uh, exercise more, win a championship, run an ultra marathon, read more, or meditate more, or any of that. Instead, my encouragement is to reflect on, first off, how do you see yourself? Who am I? Be honest with yourself. Think about the areas of your life where you say, hey, this is just who I am, or I'm not the per kind of person who takes risks, or I'm not the kind of person who's empathetic or I'm not the kind of person who's organized or maybe a statements like I'm just an impatient person or for me I know the identity I'm reflecting on a lot this year is I'm a person who always has to be busy right like that's how I see myself and so I'm trying to reframe that I'm no longer allowing me to say that to myself or to others I'm trying to talk to myself and others as if the change is happening or it has already happened up until now, I have been a person who has always had to be doing something. But I'm becoming a person who can just be and who can slow down. And as I think about taking on that new identity, then what comes up is the thoughts and actions that I need to take to become that person. The person who puts their phone away, sits down, 
and just drinks a cup of warm tea while looking out the window, right? The one who just watches his kids play without having to check my phone or have my AirPods in listening to a podcast or a book. The one who can just spend an afternoon without having to do chores or knock out things on my to-do list. I can just slow down and be with the people in my life or just be with myself. So how do you want your identity, your sense of self to evolve in the coming year? Who do you want to become in this next stage of your life? Thanks for joining us on this series. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are interested in personal support in the coming year and your growth and your development as a leader, as a coach, as a person, you can reach out to me via email or on the website at tocculture.com to set up a conversation to see if one-on-one coaching is right for you at this stage. My email will be in the details of this episode. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and share this episode if you found it valuable.